Good afternoon, everyone. It is now 5.30 here at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario. My name is Dinah Jansen, and I'm pleased to bring you another episode of Campus Beat, where each week I welcome a new guest from the Queen's University community to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Welcome and enjoy. Hello and welcome to Campus Beat. I'm Dinah Jansen. On February 16th, Queen's University announced that some of its researchers have developed a new algorithm to identify pulmonary hypertension from available Ontario healthcare data, an algorithm that's the first of its kind in Canada. And pulmonary hypertension is an often underrecognized chronic disease that involves the congestion of blood supply in the lungs and heart and is associated with other life-threatening illnesses like heart failure. And with us today to discuss this new algorithm is Dr. Don Tivanka Wijaratna from the Department of Medicine right here at Queen's University. Welcome, Don. Hi, Dinah. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It's really exciting to have you and to uh, learn so much about this new, very important breakthrough in medicine. Uh, So, Don, before we uh, flesh out today's discussion of your team's new algorithm, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your area of research and even clinical practice here at Queen's. Yeah, sure. So I'm an internist, so I'm a specialist in internal medicine. And because of my job title, I think I have a varying interest of clinical, uh, different clinical um, entities, I would say. So um, given my scope of practice, I particularly look at chronic diseases and how that impacts special populations. And that happens to be my research interest as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Looking at chronic disease, but specifically looking at specific populations like cancer patients, immigrants, and patients with chronic diseases that are complicated like pulmonary hypertension. So I'm able to kind of um, look at a broader sense, but narrow it down to a common interest, uh, looking at these specific populations. Okay, thank you very much. Now, let's learn more about pulmonary hypertension. What is it? And Don, why is it so hard to diagnose? And why is it important to accurately diagnose it? Absolutely. So my first disclosure is I am not a pulmonary hypertension specialist, having <laughs> said that our team was led by a pulmonary hypertension specialist, Dr. Stephen Archer, but mm-hmm. which I will introduce our team uh, shortly. Uh, but I think I have enough knowledge to describe what pulmonary hypertension is. Uh, off the bat, pulmonary hypertension is different from the regular hypertension or high blood pressure that we talk about. It's an entity that specifically affects your lung and thereby your heart, where due to a numerous um, due to numerous causes of heart failure, uh, obstructive sleep apnea, or COPD, as we call commonly as smoker's lung. Mm -hmm. These conditions, I'm just quoting three examples, there's so many other conditions uh, that can contribute to congestion of blood supply within the lung. And that in turn can cause congestion in the heart. And the manifestation of this is worsening of shortness of breath, reducing the exercise capacity of people and unfortunately leading to uh, premature death even. So so that's bad. In fact, some of our preliminary work done a couple of years ago shows that having a diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension increases your death by sevenfold uh, when you match uh, in a cohort uh, that's gender and age match 
So this is a very significant diagnosis to have, and uh, all the more reason to look at it, look at this at a population level. And now let's learn more about the new algorithm that your team has developed. Uh, how did your team determine the need for such an algorithm, and what did the R and D or research and development process actually entail? Yeah. So the why question is really important here uh, because. Until now, there is very limited, large population level information on pulmonary hypertension. It's typically restricted to hospitalizations with pulmonary hypertension or specialized clinics that deal with very small uh, populations of patients. And uh, pretty much they're studied as smaller groups, if not at an individual level. So there was a need to develop something, especially in the context of Ontario, having population level data that uh, some of you might be familiar with. So there's health administrative data that is trackable through the um, Institute of Clinical Evaluative Sciences, ICES as it's called. Um, And we have a node here at Queen's that we are able to um, access this. Um, So that actually has a whole constellation of information and different databases that Mm -hmm. has de-identified patient information based on their health-seeking behavior. So based on a couple of other studies that I've been exposed to, we thought it was a really good forum to try and explore the possibility of identifying patients with pulmonary hypertension using these databases. To our knowledge, this has not been done elsewhere, uh, definitely not in Canada. Uh, In the US, there were very specific groups that were studied, like uh, veterans populations, et cetera, in a smaller cohorts. Mm -hmm. Uh, But definitely uh, our study is substantial in the sense that it is actually a validation study done within our local patients uh, in a larger cohort of patients that has potential to be expanded to other locations as well. So that's the why piece. Um, The actual study per se, what we did was we first of all identified around 500 patients going through our clinical records at the hospital who have a diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension. And Mm -hmm. mind you, given the vague symptoms of shortness of breath, etc., it's actually not too easy to diagnose pulmonary hypertension. It's based off preliminary by a echocardiogram and then subsequently some more complicated tests. But a diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension when it's clinically made, our intention was to then somehow transfer that information to the health administrative data and validate that diagnosis diagnosis to see how well we capture that diagnosis. So we transferred the information about of about 450 patients with a diagnosis and compared that to the results and the diagnostic codes Uh, of those patients in health administrative data. And we primarily used um, uh, information on hospitalizations and emergency visits. As you know, each of the visits uh, related to healthcare uh, for administrative purposes are code by diagnosis. And pulmonary hypertension happens to be one of those codes. So one may say, okay, that sounds really simple because now you're saying that the health administrative data actually has the code of pulmonary hypertension. Unfortunately, it's not as simple because you do need to validate that information because there can be lots of errors. 
For mm-hmm. example, pulmonary hypertension is actually a big culprit because people with hypertension can often be labeled as pulmonary hypertension, for example. So um, there have been other diseases that have been validated similarly in Ontario, like uh, diabetes, hypertension per se, and asthma, COPD. So these have been validated over the past one to two decades, I would say, and have mm-hmm. been successfully being used in large population level data. This being an uncommon, unrecognized diagnosis, so we ended up actually transferring this information and coming up with a relatively simple algorithm to say, you know what, patients with a diagnostic code, either at hospitalization or emergency visits who have a diagnostic code of pulmonary hypertension, Mm. has a really good yield of being accurately and reliably being um, identified as a patient with pulmonary hypertension. So it's it's the process that's important, although Mm -hmm. the results might be simple, but the validation piece is actually something really rigorous and uh, done with de-identified data, following all the research protocols. As you know, ICES is very stringent about maintaining patient confidentiality. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so it was quite onerous as a, pro- a process. But the good thing is our algorithm seems fairly straightforward and uh, simple enough to be implemented and tested at, at other locations as well. Okay, thank you very much. Wow, uh, what a what a great learning experience this has been for us already. Now, now, Don, I'd like to hear a little bit more about uh, the collaborations involved too. I, I get a sense that this was uh, likely a very multidisciplinary uh, project as well. Who yeah. was involved, and what uh, what expertise was being brought in to realize this algorithm? <laughs> Absolutely. So you're absolutely right. I even though I'm interviewing here, it's a it's a large collaboration of uh, experts in medicine, epidemiology, and statistics. Uh, so I, I think the quarterback lead person is Dr. Stephen Archer, as you know, um, he's the head of department of medicine, also is a pulmonary hypertension expert in the world. Uh, so his um, expertise was super helpful to be able to uh, delineate the clinical gist of it. As I said, I'm an internal medicine specialist, so I like to call myself as knowing a little bit of everything. But it's nice to have a person who's, who knows everything of something. So uh, that was helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, also, um, so I had my feet wet uh, with other population level data, looking at immigrants um, and uh, looking at breast cancer patients. So the actual mechanistics of how to use administrative data, I had some familiarity, but we did have another ICES scientist, Dr. La- Diane Lahid, uh, who's also a pulmonologist, pulmonologist um, who has expertise in the field as well. So uh, that was super helpful. And along with that, we had a team of researchers, both clinical, uh, because as you know, this is quite onerous because you're looking at abstracting information from 500 charts with certain reliability. Although I was able to validate most of that information, some of the groundwork can be quite onerous, right? <laughs> yes. So this is, the, this is the amazing piece because I, I find that we often talk about the tip of the iceberg, but the work that goes into it is just enormous. Uh, so much so I think this work went on for almost three years, if I recall. Um, so um, anyway, there were um, residents who are now finishing off their training. Um, uh, some of actually most of them becoming cardiologists as well. Uh, so Ping Zion and Ahmed Hussein, uh, both uh, taking up cardiology, who were residents uh, initially who helped out with the study, along with uh, several epidemiologists and statisticians um, and 
people from the support administrative staff, uh, sorry, from the IT services at uh, Kingston Health Sciences as well, who uh, helped with the abstraction piece. So uh, I think the uniqueness that, we, that I like to emphasize again is that this is a local study using local patients. So there's a little bit of, um, uh, I think, onus and happiness that we are actually doing a local study, but has utility uh, in a broader sense, perhaps uh, globally as well. Now, I'd like to also hear more, Don, if we might uh, discuss how the project has also built on the development and implementation of algorithms that help diagnose other diseases like diabetes or asthma. And, and you also mentioned chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So how is it building on uh, work done in other countries related to algorithms for uh, other diagnoses? Yeah, so there's a twofold answer to that. I think it was super helpful to know how the other algorithms work. In fact, Dr. Diane Lahid has been the world lead to um, have similar algorithms uh, developed for um, asthma, for mm -hmm. example. So, um, and essentially we started exploring the possibilities using very similar algorithms. The only limitation for pulmonary hypertension is we found that the administrative codes used for physician billing, known as the OHIP billing, mm -hmm. codes were not very accurate for pulmonary hypertension, whereas for asthma, it was actually more accurate. So we had to make, make some tweaking in terms of what we were exploring in terms of um, uh, using pulmonary hypertension. But to answer your question, um, it has been quite successful and validated for common diagnosis, as you say, for COPD, asthma, diabetes, hypertension. There's lots of work coming from Toronto. There's been quite proactive research groups looking at specifically diabetes and hypertension. And these have been quite revolutionary because it actually facilitate, facilitates large level populations to be studied over time to describe them and see how they change over time as well. And that has huge implications. The other cool thing is that health administrative data are international codes. Uh, they use international codes of diagnosis. So it's not something specific to a hospital or a province. It can be generalizable. It's called the international classification of disease. So it's truly international. The ICD codes mm -hmm. are used across the province, across Canada, in the US, and perhaps any other country that has administrative data recorded. So the implication of that is uh, pulmonary hypertension in this study and several other diagnoses that I just talked about, most of these can be accurately identified by similar algorithms. The second aspect that I want to kind of talk about is there's a intertwined nature with pulmonary hypertension and other diagnoses, as I said. So as a complementary thing that we did, um, along with identifying pulmonary hypertension was to start describing the patients with pulmonary hypertension. Uh, for example, having COPD, heart failure. So that's super important to be able to describe the population within. And we use the algorithms that were used to diagnose the previous uh, conditions like heart failure, COPD within this population, which actually is a super helpful thing as well, because we do know pulmonary hypertension I'm simplifying this, but a large proportion of patients do have either heart failure or COPD, either in isolation or in combination. So to be able to verify that as a risk factor for pulmonary hypertension, and uh, that is super helpful. So I think all this body of work is intertwined mm -hmm. um, and uh, that uh, is super helpful. And I think 
our, our work just complements uh, to the body of work that's already there. Amazing. All right. And now if we can talk about the how, if we can for a moment, how will the algorithm in practice help better determine pulmonary hypertension diagnoses? In short, as you're using the algorithm, how does it work to help you or other physicians make that diagnosis? Yeah. So what I do want to clarify is this is not about diagnosis at the individual level. Okay. This is a population level study where we are able to identify large populations of people mm-hmm. with hypertension in a reliable, accurate manner. So, um, so the implications of that is number one, to describe this population based on their age, their gender, other comorbidities or illnesses that I just alluded to, like heart failure, COPD, um, other common uh, risk factor for pulmonary hypertension is having blood clots within the lung called pulmonary embolism. Uh, and of course, there's the proportion of patients who don't have a cause of pulmonary hypertension. So, so all these can be delineated and just that description by itself is super helpful number one, to describe, and then number two, to be able to follow them up and see how do they, these patients use healthcare, i.e., how do these patients present to hospital with what diagnosis? Um, uh, unfortunately, how do these people die with what diagnosis? So that's super helpful to be able to uh, uh, look at this over time. And also, um, if we were to do interventions to this larger population, over time, we can measure the success of these interventions as well. So maybe uh, using different um, investigations to diagnose these patients, it may be different treatment options that we offer over time. So all these can be studied at a a larger level over time that becomes uh, super helpful. So, so that is the main utility mm-hmm. of using uh, this type of algorithm. And of course, that translates into better patient care at an individual level. So to be able to say within pulmonary hypertension, the high risk group is this particular age group, maybe from 40 to 70, that the majority of the females actually get uh, pulmonary hypertension and maybe... 40 to 50% of the patients in fact have a diagnosis of either heart failure or COPD. So then we are able to focus on these subgroups of populations and have targeted interventions. We already know that risk factor modification or improvement, if we improve their heart failure, if we improve their COPD and address their clots within the lung, there is a significant improvement in pulmonary hypertension. So measuring that at a larger uh, population level is super helpful as well. Okay, thank you so much for clarifying. Now, Don, where can we find the published research? Yeah, so it was recently published just a couple of days ago in Pulmonary Circulation. Uh, So I don't know whether there's a way of uh, having a link uh, uh, somewhere, but it is available uh, in the Queen's Gazette. And if anyone is interested, my um, Twitter account is Dr. Underscore DTW. Uh, So if you communicate with me, I'm more than happy to share further information as well. Fantastic. So Don, any final thoughts before we wrap up today? Yeah, so essentially, thank you so much for this opportunity. I think for researchers like us, especially up and coming researchers like that, uh, like us, it, it's super 
motivating and helpful to have a forum to discuss this type of thing. So thank you. And I think uh, my message is uh, this is a proof of concept study that's local. I do want to acknowledge that. And uh, our plan is to um, apply this in different settings, uh, initially within Ontario and then looking uh, within Canada and outside Canada as well. And I said that's very practical given the common uh, commonality of code. So we are seeking collaboration from other institutes that we can actually actually uh, validate this further and create uh, hopefully a national or at least a provincial cohort of patients that can be studied long term. All right. Well, as developments in those regards happen, keep in touch. We'd love to hear more. Absolutely, Diana. Thank you so much, folks. We have been talking with Don Tivanka Wijaratna of the Department of Medicine right here at Queen's University about an innovative new algorithm that identifies pulmonary hypotension from available Ontario healthcare data developed right here locally. Thank you so much for joining us, Don. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Dinah. Appreciate it. Welcome back to Campus Beat. In our next segment, we're discussing the introduction of Canada's first master's level training program in infection prevention and control right here at Queen's University in partnership with IPAC Canada. And with us today to discuss this new master's in public health program are Dr. Bradley Stoner, professor in the Department of Medicine and head of the Department of Public Health Sciences, alongside Jerry Hansen, the executive director of IPAC Canada. Welcome, Jerry and Bradley. Thank you, Dinah. Nice to be here. Hello, Dinah. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Now, Jerry, first off, as the Executive Director of IPAC Canada, can you tell our listeners here in Kingston what IPAC Canada is and does? IPAC Canada is the acronym for Infection Prevention and Control Canada. We are a member-based professional organization. Our members are infection prevention professionals. We have 1,800 members across Canada and 18 chapters across Canada. The work of IPAC Canada is to provide education, communication, and advocacy for our members. Okay, thank you so much. And now let's learn more about the longstanding collaborative relationship that you've had with Queen's University over the years. And can we learn more about how a partnership was struck between IPAC Canada and the Department of Public Health Sciences specifically to do with this new master's program? We have had a, a great relationship with Queens for many years based on the um, basic infection prevention and control program that has been running at Queens for several years. They have been a great support of our members and we have endorsed that program. Um, our curriculum being the standard for basic education across Canada. In 20, late 2020, there was discussion around the importance of providing an IPAC infection prevention and control stream for uh, master's students and those considering a career in infection control. There was discussion amongst the directors at Queen's and representatives of IPAC Canada as well we were uh, luckily uh, working well together on the curriculum, on the development, and it's been um, a great process to have that program develop. It is unique to Canada. Uh, certainly our uh, 
partner organization in the States has recently developed a program not as, not as well developed as ours. So we're very proud of the program and very proud to, con to uh, continue the rela relationship with Queen's. Wonderful. Thank you very much for sharing, Jerry. Now, let's dive more into this new master's program itself. Uh, I'd like to learn more about the building of the master's degree program and what prospective students might expect if they join the IPAC track at Queen's University. For example, what courses will be taught and or if there are internship and practicum opportunities to pursue. Brad, let's hear from you. Uh, we're very excited about this program, Diana, and uh, uh, we have had a very well-regarded uh, master in public health program at Queen's for many years, uh, and it is what we would call a generalist track. These are uh, students who are interested in service in public health, uh, and they um, get high-level master's training uh, without specialization. That They were taking courses in uh, a policy program development, uh, biostatistics, epidemiology, the usual public health curriculum. Mm -hmm. uh, with COVID has really highlighted uh, the important role that preventionists uh, play in society, not just in the hospital setting, but in so many different areas uh, of, of work and uh, um, uh, long-term care facilities, uh, um, uh, innumerable opportunities now where infection prevention is really part and parcel of the, uh, uh, of the activity of the organization. Uh, so so uh, we have reasoned that uh, developing a stream within our existing master of public health program to focus on infection prevention and control would be the, the best approach uh, because the students would come out with a, a full robust master's degree that's um, already been established with now specialization in infection prevention and control. So we've created three new courses uh, specifically around uh, infection prevention and control, one in medical microbiology, uh, one in foundations of uh, IPAC, foundations of infection prevention and control principles, and a third in healthcare quality uh, and um, uh, uh, risk and uh, 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 coupled with a summer uh, practicum or internship, if you will, in an IPAC related setting. Uh, so these four elements now comprise the specialization within the MPH. So the students are getting all of the original MPH uh, programming and they're using their electives now to uh, focus specifically on IPAC. And we're very excited because we have been approved uh, to now uh, designate their on their transcript uh, specialization in infection prevention and control. We know of no other master's program in Canada that has that uh, designation. Thank you very much for sharing. Now, can we learn more from the two of you about the current demand for trained infection prevention and control professionals inside and outside of the pandemic, if you will? So after SARS, in 2003, there mm -hmm. was a high demand for infection control resources, including staffing, education, and training. Over time, those resources were reduced. Uh, you know, people, governments, health authorities became complacent to the fact that the crisis was over and we could cut back on these resources. As we saw, quickly and unexpectedly in 2020, those resources were needed. They were uh, lacking in all settings, particularly in long-term care, which is a mm -hmm. frightening as uh, aspect of, of healthcare. 
And so we have been working with health authorities to try to assist them to bring new infection control professionals into the workforce um, and to train those already in healthcare for infection control duties. There is a very high demand right now for infection control professionals in all settings, again, especially in long-term care. We have been advocating with the federal government for a couple of years now with our efforts ramped up over the pandemic to ensure that infection prevention and control professionals are employed as leads in long-term care to ensure that they are adequately educated in training. Those who are currently in the Masters of Public Health program will not only come out with the expertise in public health and healthcare, but they will now be able to have the skills and the, the technical expertise to move forward if their career path is now infection control. I just want to jump on uh, on what Jerry is saying and say, that although we don't know what the demand is going to be, um, we uh, uh, got this program approved uh, late in 2021. Um, and when we announced it to our existing MPH students, these are students who didn't even know it was coming. Uh, we now have uh, several students who have jumped right into uh, the program and they're taking these elective courses because we're offering them now uh, in winter term. Uh, so at least six students that I know of are uh, going to complete the IPAC track and they weren't even recruited for it. So I think when we open up uh, recruitment uh, and start advertising, uh, we're going to have a significant uh, demand. Amazing. And now great segue there, Brad. With the passing of the fall 2022 application deadline in late January 2022, how can prospective students learn more and later apply for the fall 2023 program cycle? Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, We're going to be uh, working with uh, IPAC Canada for uh, branding. Uh, we'll be uh, uh, promoting the relationship on our website. And uh, I know Jerry's working on promoting you know, the Queen's relationship on, on uh, the IPAC Canada website. Uh, the IPAC conference, Jerry, you don't want to talk about that because we will be an exhibitor. Queen's University is going to be exhibiting at the IPAC conference coming up in April. Uh, and so we'll uh, definitely get some, some mileage there. Jerry, do you want to jump in? Yeah, well, we are having our virtual conference in April, the second year for a virtual conference. I mean, everybody misses those in-person conferences, but this is really the best way to make sure that education continues to go to those who even in a normal year might not be able to attend the conference. Uh, we're happy that Queen's is joining us uh, to provide information on the program to, there will be an opportunity for attendees to have a face-to-face -face with Queen's representatives to talk about their career path and how it can be satisfied through the new IPAC stream at, uh, at Queen's. And uh, we expect, well, last year we had over 700 attendees on our virtual platform and we expect the same this year. So it's a great opportunity for Queens to promote, but it's a great opportunity for our attendees to be able to talk directly to Queens reps to find out more about the program. Okay, so thank you very much, both of you. Folks, we've been discussing the new master's level training program in infection prevention and control with Dr. Bradley Stoner and Jerry Hansen of Queen's University and IPAC Canada, respectively. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Diana, and thank you, Brad. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting us.
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.